Hello and welcome to Streamit, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 4, Episode 6, and today we are going to be talking about Summer of Soul from 2021. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, and I am one of your co-hosts. I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Oh man, doing doing good. We're almost at the end of the week and then we just had vacation and we're actually going on vacation again after next week. So it's it's a month where I only have to work two weeks, which is really nice. That is delightful. Yes, it's wonderful. I also only have to work two weeks this month, though my, my, my working is that I start jury duty uh, tomorrow. So like, who knows? Oh, yeah. Who knows what's all going to be happening your with civil that. duty? That's good right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so who knows? We'll see. We'll see what happens. I can't talk about like anything or whatnot, but I also have no idea what's going on or if I'll be selected or anything. So we'll see. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully you don't get sequestered and stream. It doesn't get, doesn't get put on hold. It's possible. I doubt it. It's not likely, but who knows? Maybe we'll have to do a, um, do like the Pelican Brief and the Runaway Jury and the Firm and <laughs> all the all the John Grisham movies. Yeah, and Twelve Angry Men, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. one's not John Grisham, but yeah, that would that would probably be get us some better diversity. It'd be a good one for sure. Uh, <laughs> okay. So what? What's did you hadn't seen Summer of Soul before? before watching it this time yeah i had not seen this one but it's been on my list of things to watch for basically since it came out but it came out and i believe it went on hulu pretty quick afterwards and i didn't get to see it in theaters just because of covid and then it was on hulu and i didn't have hulu at the time and i considered getting it just so i could go watch this but then uh, I figured we were going to be covering it for the show, so I figured I would wait until we did that to watch this film. So it's been basically a year that I've been waiting to watch this film, and I was very excited to do it. Nice, yeah. I I also hadn't seen this, and I I was working my way through the Oscar nominees last year, and so it was on my list, but then I ended up prioritizing all of the non-documentaries because it's just so many movies to watch and those generally you can hit more categories so if i watched like one movie i was able to cross off three or four different nominees and that was just a little harder for documentaries so the the only two documentaries i've hit from last year is i've done this and then i also watched flea which i think is also on hulu it is on streaming somewhere and I think it's Hulu, but I'm not Yes, it is on sure. Hulu. It is, okay. And then obviously I, well, now I live in New Jersey, but I did previously live in New York and I work in New York, so I <laughs> know the area pretty well. I know where that where that park is. I used to live up in Harlem. I was about 20 blocks north of where this was. And as I've talked about before on the podcast, I like music. I'm a musician, so... <laughs> I I was pretty pretty primed for this one. You're ready for this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. It's a and for me, 
I was pretty I listened to a lot of this kind of music. It's a lot of this music is around in my preferred genres of like Motown and R&B and all these kinds of things and I've listened to pretty much all of these performers before. So, I was very excited for the songs that would be coming up and for everything that would be involved with it. In fact, I went through to look at how many of the songs I knew beforehand when I before watching this. Mm. And there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, I think, songs featured on this on this film. And out of those, I am familiar with 14 of them. So I already knew 14 of those songs. There were only two that I didn't really know. Pretty cool. A nice 87.5% there. Yeah, yeah. So, Assuming I did my math correctly. So nice. watching it, I was kind of... It, it kind of blew me away because I just, every song that came up, I was like, oh, I know this song. I know the words to this song. I can sing along with this one. So that was a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I am quite a bit less familiar with the majority of the artists here than you are. Although I do, I, most of them I've listened to at least an album or two, but it's not people where I am intimately familiar with their discographies and I was a lot more hit or miss on whether or not I knew the songs. Sure. Um, probably about 50% where I'd heard the songs, but much less that where I knew the lyrics and generally knew what was, what was coming up. Did, had you, had you heard of the Harlem cultural festival before either watching the documentary or hearing about the documentary? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that it existed. Yeah. And same. yeah, which is, Additionally, on top of this, I teach I teach about Raisin in the Sun every year. And so part of that, I also teach about Nina Simone. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of Nina Simone footage because of that. And this was footage that I had never seen of Nina Simone. So, uh, so that was interesting. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. All right. So we can talk quickly about our justification for picking this, although we have covered it in previous podcasts and we did sort of just talk about it. But this is the end of our little our little oscar run here and i know we have i think i probably have warmer feelings towards the oscars than you do just because my brain tends to like the idea of categorizing things and <laughs> looking at years in totality and although i recognize all of the issues and problems it also still is kind of the best we have and it certainly is what carries a lot of cultural cachet, like it or not, you know, whether whether or not it's correct or not, those nominations live forever and people will always be able to look up and always be able to see what was nominated every year and what won every year. And if you go to a Wikipedia page for a movie, a lot of times it'll say how many Oscar noms it got and if it got a win, that's featured prominently. So like it or not, it's something that carries a lot of weight for history for sure and then additionally one thing that i think is you know i get frustrated with the oscars a lot but when something that's really deserving wins that is a really big deal for me because i just am really proud of the people that were able to achieve that and you know we'll we'll get into reactions and things but it's not like we can spoil what happens in this film it's just no yeah this is there's not really a possibility of spoiling it but this is 
for me, it was a very deserving winner. And so I really was glad that it was able to win. I was glad when it won that that Questlove was able to pick up the Oscar. I hadn't seen it yet, but I was excited to watch it. And it was one that I was hoping would win in its category from what I had read about the different films. So, yeah, it was very exciting. I definitely wanted to watch this because of those things. And I think that it's a an important important cultural moment to be able to recognize uh, and its yeah. intersection with a lot of other important cultural moments that we're currently going through that I felt like that made it a particularly good film for us to cover for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So th- this movie came out on July 2nd, 2021, just about a year ago from when we when we were recording right now a little over a year ago uh, a little bit longer by the time everyone is hearing this but well, why don't we it turns yeah. out that i watched this film on july 2nd of this year so the one year anniversary of this film but anyway oh wow you know, yeah so i didn't realize that till just now oh that's cool so why don't we use that to talk a little bit about you had pulled some stuff to talk about that was going on in the world and in 2021 going Mm -hmm. on at this time so the main thing i think the thing that dominated the year was uh, covid19 and the access to vaccines which was Mm -hmm. kind of rolling out throughout the year so there was just this long year-long rollout of vaccines and access to them i had vaccine access to the vaccine very much earlier on in i think february because i am a teacher but then waiting for everybody else to get vaccinated would took a long time through the summer and so people's access to different kinds of like culture was in kind of this rolling period and i know for me i didn't go see this movie because in the theater just because of of covid issues and things like that and i was waiting to get a booster and all that kind of stuff and i assume i think that was probably the same for i don't know if you would have seen it in theater or not but i don't think you were going to the theater in the summer at that time period no i only saw two wait maybe i only saw one movie in theaters this entire year in 2021 i think i only saw the james bond movie no no time to die because then by the time we were like getting close enough to feeling comfortable even though we were vaccinated and comfortable is the wrong word but it's just like we only you only have so many risk points and it was like are we gonna spend them on on a movie and ultimately we did we decided not to so yeah i I think i only saw one movie in theaters this year and then had to wait until the the new year for spider-man which which was the other big release from last year that i really wanted to see in theaters yeah for sure so so that affected well and then additionally this came out real close to the release of like Black Widow, I think, released Mm -hmm. around the same time period. And so, like, people were not going to the theater. Those were some of the first films that really released in theaters of that year. It just, not very many were happening. So, it was released at kind of a weird time because of that. And I think that affects so much about this film but in particular even just watching the film i think that part of people's reaction to it is you're watching all these people just out having a good time at like you know this this big outdoor festival just all together crammed together to watch this concert and that was not happening in in the world really at that time period so i think that affected people's 
viewing of this film. Yeah, Black Widow was out just four days before before this movie. Yeah, and the we should say that we have covered a movie from 2021 already. We did do Dune last year, pretty close to when it released, and that was in October. And I, if I remember correctly, I think that was one of the first movies that you saw in theaters. Uh, yeah, I saw. Let's see, I saw Black Widow in streaming on the day of the release, and then Shang Chi and Eternals and Dune. So. And then Spider-Man. Those are the only four movies I saw in the theater all of last year. And for for me, I'm a person that goes to the theater quite frequently. It's before COVID hit, I would go to the theater probably 30 or 40 times in a year. So it's, it was a big significant downshift because of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else What else did you have pulled from, from this year? So I think this is the more relevant. Well, the other one was relevant, but I think this one pertains particularly to this film and not just every film that was released last year. So at the beginning of the year, you had the trial of the murder of, of George Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin. And that trial was going on for a big period of time. And it was, as I was looking it up, it turns out that it was one of the most broadly televised trials in history possibly the most viewed trial that anyone has ever watched because just of population increases. So percentage-wise of the population, probably not, but it had huge numbers of people that watched it. And then additionally, about three weeks before this film released, uh, Darnella Frazier won the Pulitzer Prize for the recording that she made of the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. And so I think just the... The civil rights movement and the moment that was going on from 2020 and the lasting effects that were going through the summer of 2021 that I still think there was a lot of that impact that was going on. We didn't have the same kinds of protests or riots, but I do think people were still thinking about and looking back on those events. And I think that would have a major impact on the way that people processed this film. It definitely did for me as I was watching it. Yeah, this is something that sort of has been, I've at least my perception of it is it's been roiling in the public consciousness since the Black Lives Matter movement started, which was 2014 or 2015? I think 2014, right? I can't remember precisely, but somewhere around in that range, yeah. And so it's sort of, (laughs) it's sort of disheartening because you really can go and any year in this whatever eight eight year time period you can go and pull a major event that is going to if you see a film that's created by someone who's black and dealing with a lot of the cultural politics and quite frankly a lot of the racism that (laughs) has has and continues to afflict this country then it's just there's always going to be something that you can pull that is part of the public consciousness and i mean i guess in some ways that's good because it means that we're thinking about this and dealing dealing with it in a way that maybe we weren't or at least white people weren't forced to confront it previously but yeah it does does feel like it just keeps repeating yeah it feels as the director Trayvon frequently says feels like Groundhog Day you're just going through over over and over the same events so yeah and 
I think that's there's so much of the civil rights movement that's tied up with this film as well, the the events that it documents, that I think it would be impossible to disentangle all of those things. They're all connected. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. So those are my things from 2021. Uh, otherwise, people, you know, uh, most of our people that are listening remember living through that year, and but this should be able to bring you back into the moment. But you had some things pulled up for the time period where the the, the this documents in 1969. Yeah. So one of the I'll I'll maybe put the wiki link to 1969 in music into the into the show notes because I was looking at it and it is just an absolute banger year. I mean, not to mention like we had this music festival that everyone just completely forgot about and Woodstock, which is talked about in the film, but Abbey Road was released. The Beatles broke up (laughs) or (laughs) announced their breakup. Elvis returned to live performances. Diana Ross and the Supremes released their final single. The heartbreak uh, Sly and the family stone who are in this documentary had their, I don't want to say breakout album, but, probably their biggest album stand was released this year and then i mean there were a ton of other things but also the who released tommy like it is just it is a wild year in terms of in terms of music so i'll i'll post that link and then because hair is mentioned in this documentary that this july 8th so just in the yeah in the middle of when the festival was happening was the first u.s troop withdrawals from the vietnam war yeah Whew. yeah yeah and then the yeah there's there's a bunch of other stuff in 1969 that happened and in the surrounding years but a lot of them are touched on in the documentary so we'll we'll be able to talk about those in in the back half of the show yeah there's a, some of those things we had scheduled to talk about different things that were historical events that they addressed in the show but it really does feel like you hit the film hits so much of the year 1969 and just everything that was going on at the time period it it's it documents the year really well as well as the the festival yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we'll keep moving right along here. We don't have a ton of personnel to talk about here, and we can go over the stats quickly, but what's the budget for this, Maddie? The budget for this, they had $450,000 split between four people to make this film. So, um, yeah, not very much. And the no. majority of that is just, you know, Questlove doing the vast majority of the work on this film by himself but the box office for this film was 3.7 million dollars which you know is not a huge box office number and part of that was being in covid when it was released but uh, honestly for a documentary that's a really really good return on investment and yeah. yeah those are actually really good numbers and i think part of that is propped up because because covid was going on people weren't going to the theaters this one in the limited release that it had in theaters that you could go to it had a really high per screen average so a lot of people went to go see this movie because there wasn't anything else available and so it had a pretty big result because of that and then went on to win the oscars and has been on hulu and i assume it must have been watched 
quite a bit on Hulu because of the Oscars release. So that $450,000 budget actually turned into quite a big amount of money. And the comparison between this budget and its box office revenue, if you took, like, um, um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and its budget and then increased it by the same multiplier, that would be a box office revenue of, like, $1.8 billion. Um, So... Overall, really good return on investment for this film. It did exceptionally well in the box office. Yeah. Nice. So invest in documentaries is what I'm what I'm hearing. <laughs> invest in documentaries when you know that they're going to be re- released at a time when nobody's watching anything else. Uh, and you can get the only people in the theater in to watch your film. That is a very good recipe for success. So Also, if you think you're going to win the Oscar for Best Documentary, I yeah, imagine this is, that helps quite a bit. Very good. Uh, very good recipe for success. Yeah. So let's talk about our... I mean, there's a million artists we could talk about for this, but I think we'll be able to hit them. Hit them. Be able to touch on them in the back half of the show. But I know that you wanted to talk about Questlove. Yeah, Questlove. Uh, it's this film was basically a project by Questlove. There's other people that helped him out with this, but it's it's work or service that they're providing to him in his efforts to put this film together. He he gets the documentary footage that was in like a basement somewhere uh, that people didn't know about and he had never heard about and basically nobody like the records of this event were had completely disappeared and it talks about the, this in the film. And then he gets those and he just for something like like 10 weeks or something like that. He just had it on all day long and just writing down different things that he was noticing or that he was pulling out that he could put into the, into the documentary for, for those folks that don't know who Questlove is. Questlove is the frontman for the band, the roots, which performs is the, uh, what do you call it? The, the stage band for the Jimmy Fallon show. Um, mm-hmm. And he's been performing there for quite a long time. Very good friends with Jimmy Fallon. And then he put together this film, and it's his first directing gig. And, yeah, huge smash success. Yeah, and there, so they did try and... There were several people that had been approached about making this documentary before Questlove. And, or I think it was actually to broadcast it on TV, which was... they talk in the documentary was like the original plan and there like just no one was willing to undertake (laughs) piecing it all together and then I think what Questlove has said was man if I had known that this was happening it would have affected my life so much yeah and so he was like yeah I gotta I gotta put this together so that the people can see it yeah, like it. He felt like it fell to him that he had to put it together, and he hadn't really directed a film. That that's a huge process to have to do, and he knew his way around like film and things like that. He had people that could help him figure out how to do this. So it's not like he didn't have the resources to do that. But it's he just felt a very big responsibility to the footage that was there to be able to put it together. And because he connected with it so much, he wanted to make sure it got done. I also saw some interviews with Questlove, and one of these things blew me away, and I had to bring it up to you. Oh, sure. So he talked about one of his daily routine. I saw this interview with him talking about it. Like working on the 
movie? No, no, no. Just his normal daily routine. His oh, okay. daily routine, routine working on the movie, he did talk about that as well, but it was basically he would get up, turn the festival on, watch it all day long, and just write down in a notebook all the things that he wanted to put together. And then he did that for several weeks on end. Uh, and then, <laughs> like, that was just his life. Uh, yeah. But his normal daily routine, he gets, like, up and then goes to work and all of that stuff. And he has a goal of discovering how many new songs do you think he tries to discover every day? If you were to take a Ooh. guess. Like songs he'd um, never heard of before. Curious. Um, my, my guess would be that something like attainable to a normal human would probably be like 10. So he... His goal, what he does every single day is he listens to 100 new songs that he had not heard before. Wow. It blew me away. Yeah, that's that's so many. I would be... Man, now I wish I was the one interviewing him because I have so many questions about his listening process and how... How he... Like, how much he thinks he's able to retain from those songs and how... Like, what percentage of those songs, I wonder... Is it just like you listen to them and it's they're in one ear and out the other? And so he actually answers some of those questions. So I can oh, tell you does? a little okay. bit. Yeah. So what okay. he does is he does this process, what he calls pruning. And so what he does mm-hmm. is as he's going through the songs, he's listening to the songs. And he also does a lot of DJing. So it makes sense that he's always trying right. to collect songs. Of course. So what he does is he'll be listening on Spotify. And every time he listens to a song, he goes down and scrolls through where it shows you other recommended songs until he finds one he hasn't listened to. And every one of these songs that he listens to, he'll add it to a playlist of whatever it might be. So it'll be like this is my playlist for i'm adding it to my playlist for thursday mornings and this one's the one for thursday afternoons this one's for when i'm jogging this one's for like when i'm drinking coffee or whatever it might be and he has all these different playlists for that level of detail of his week Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff and so as he's listening to songs he just goes through and will separate them for these or different vibes of kinds of DJing things that he wants to do like different emotions or moods that he's going for so he separates them all to that degree so that's how much detail he goes into which with each of those songs this actually doesn't surprise me at all so one of the things that I think is so so Questlove he was like his parents were performers and so he grew up like backstage learning doo-wop songs and started performing as a drummer. I think I saw by like age seven, he was performing on stage as a drummer. And by age 13, he was like music directing and all that sort of stuff. And I think there's something so fascinating and also pretty inspiring about uh, artists who live their lives and have as varied interests as Questlove do because I went and watched like some of his videos and some of his drum solos and there is like he's an unbelievably good drummer I mean I'm not a drummer technician I'm not a drummer expert but it is clear like if you know anything about music what he is playing is rhythmically difficult and it's frequently speedy like it's (laughs) not it's just a lot of notes to play, but then he also does it all so effortlessly. And on the, I can't remember exactly what number it was, but Rolling Stone 
he was in, I think he was 54 or 58 on their list of best drummers of all time. Like he is just an extremely accomplished drummer. And there are a lot of extremely accomplished drummers who that is what they do. And that is what they dedicated their life to, but they aren't out there DJing. They aren't out there fronting the Jimmy Fallon band. They aren't out there executive producing all of these albums. And you just run down his Wikipedia of stuff that he's done. And it is so varied. And he's written four books, written several intros to other people's books. And then this is his directorial debut. And the, you know, not, it's no shade to people who are, who are singularly focused. Like, I think that's amazing too. But I also love when I find people who it's just like, the energy is just going out in all of these directions. And it's just, they're, they have all these different artistic pursuits. And when he finds it, he has, he has enough knowledge to know, like, how to make something his own so that it's going to be good. But then also, it seems I'm inferring here, enough confidence and also enough like a lack of ego to be able to ask for the help to do the things that he doesn't know how to do, which yeah. allows you to make a great documentary like this. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, uh, he learned how to like edit all this video together because he just, you know, was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go find some people to help me figure out how to do this. He's seems very much to be that kind of person. And he's also known as being like a walking encyclopedia of music which makes sense if he's listening to and discovering so many songs he just knows so much stuff and that's part of what he talked about when he put this together is that he felt like if anyone in the world should have known about this cultural festival it should have been him because Mm -hmm. he has so much knowledge of music history and he didn't know anything about it when he first found out about it and that's part of why he felt he needed to make the film yeah yeah it makes it makes sense, and <laughs> I think, like, his greatest achievement is he had, what, 40, 40 hours of footage? Yes, 40 hours of footage for this. Being able to narrow that down to two hours, because I yeah. think every performer, I was like, yeah, I would have just watched, I just would have watched their whole set, yep. you know? I would have been totally fine to do that. Yeah, me too. So, so. <laughs> being able to whittle this down is... Uh, pretty supreme achievement in my opinion yes i agree with that for sure excellent excellent work by quest love on this one so that's all i have to say about the people involved yeah we can uh move on do do you have any advice for first-time viewers here i think this one's pretty straightforward i don't i don't know if you had anything pulled you wanted to say i just wrote down that it's a concert film like you're sitting down and watching a bunch of people perform music and that's pretty much what it is and then it has some anecdotes and things like that that are tied in that are talking about the historical references some interviews with the people that were involved but it's just a really excellent well put together concert documentary essentially yeah so the better your sound system is the better the better off you're probably going to be for this one yeah for sure all right let's take a break and we'll be back well we're gonna spoil the whole documentary (laughs) so look out here it comes all right welcome welcome back 
we <laughs> we kind of spoiled whether we liked this like this movie in the front half of the show but what was what was your reaction watching this Maddie? yeah i loved it i just it was great i ended up looking back and I, it replaced my top film of the year from last year so for me this is my favorite film that i watched in all of last year if i were picking like mm. the best movie of last year but for like the best oscar winner the best this is this is the one and it's just a documentary so i guess the highest it was going to achieve at the oscars was documentary but that's how much i loved it i i just loved every moment of it i turned it on and intended to watch it in pieces and i just watched the whole thing all i did was think about the music afterwards i've been singing this music since we watched it and just been thinking about over and over again all the people involved it was absolutely thrilling i loved it so much Ooh, I should have checked where this sits on my 2021 list. It it definitely isn't taking the top slot for me because <laughs> No Way Home is my third favorite movie of all time. So it, it wasn't passing that, but I'm guessing it's in the in the top five. Is No Way Home your number two? I can't remember. Uh, no Way Home, I think, is my number three. Because I also had another documentary as my other favorite film of the year, which was a documentary called Simple as Water, which everyone should go watch because it was excellent. And that one is on... I think it's on Amazon Prime. I can't remember. But also an ec- excellent documentary. This one, though, I don't know. It was... It had... It addressed a broader range of emotions, for me than Simple as Water did. So Simple as Water was very good and excellent, but this one just was dynamic in a different way. And you could just watch this basically anytime and watch this over and over and over again. So it ended up jumping up on my list. Nice. Yeah, Mara and I watched this one together. She doesn't watch all of the, or really a lot of the stream it movies with me, but I really loved this one. It was so great to see all of these performers and a lot of them we'll talk about specifically and i also the i really appreciated how much of the time period they were able to give us it's really nice when i don't have to be connecting the dots in my own head and they sort of are connecting the dots for me or in this case there were several things that i I don't know if I learned, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that there were four major assassinations within yeah. five years of one another. Yeah. And I knew I knew what year they had all happened, but I just didn't think about the fact that they all had happened at once. And when I said that to Mayor, she was like, didn't you take an American history class? And I was like, uh, well... No, actually, I didn't because my high school was really weird, and then I didn't take one in college. So yeah, this all uh, made that that all tracks for me. I totally understand. I teach the civil rights movement and a Raisin in the sun, so I I have made that connection. But I I had to make that connection and like point out to my students all these assassinations happen, and sometimes we ask the question like, what happened to the civil rights movement? And the answer is mm-hmm. so many of the leaders of the movement got assassinated and that is kind of what led the movement to kind of lose a lot of the energy and a lot of the steam that it had in its ability to make change. And so the threat and the backlash that came from white people in response to it, it with people getting murdered and all of those kinds of things. So there was legislation that happened, but that it was always also backlash going on that caused a significant it caused people to not be able to to protest in the same in, 
same kind of ways and have their movement in the same kind of ways. Yeah. And the, the other thing that really surprised me that I was not expecting was I was not expecting to hear, particularly to hear people of color, to hear black people lump in the JFK assassination with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. That is, I yeah, I just was surprised to hear that. And also Robert Kennedy, putting those together, like those are all four closely assass- or closely connected assassinations. Yeah, yeah, that, that was surprising to me. And on top of that, they, they didn't mention like Medgar Evers got assassinated during this time period as well, and, and several other leaders in the civil rights movement. But there's those four that are like really stand out, and then several other smaller ones that were very important during this time period. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say here? Should we talk about some specific scenes? We can go... Yeah, let's go to the specific scenes. Yeah, scenes is kind of the wrong word, but specific... <laughs> that's just what we have in our in our show notes. Specific yeah. sequences. Specific events. Yeah, so the... There was, I just loved every... Every performer, every set, every moment of this film. So it was really hard for me to just go through and say... Like, pick what I'm going to talk about. But one of the ones that really stuck out to me that I really connected with was the section of the film that talks about Gladys Knight. Mm-hmm. So Gladys Knight comes on. She performs. She performs specifically. I heard it through the grapevine, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. I'm usually the one that I listen to. The recording that I listen to is the Marvin Gaye recording of it, which I think more people are familiar with. It is one of the earliest songs that I really learned as a singer. And when I was in college, I was part of uh, part of like a boy band slash acapella group kind of thing. And this is one of the songs that we sang. And I sang lead vocals on it. So I'm very familiar with that song. I performed it like dozens and dozens of times. And Gladys Knight has one of the iconic performances as well as Marvin Gaye's performance. I also love Gladys Knight for many other reasons. And seeing her perform was just such a delight and she's so young in this performance and i'm she used to so young she's so young it just it was crazy to me to see her so young the other person that i saw that was so young was stevie wonder which kind of blew me away that they're Man just remarked on that as well yeah. yeah just so young these perform performers and you're seeing them kind of at the beginning of their uh, beginning of their career gladys knight in particular was very much a household staple for me in my home for a lot mm-hmm. of different reasons. My my family, my grandparents on my mom's side, listened to a lot of this music. So they were in the Tooele County in Utah. Their neighbors, they had a black family that moved next door and were one of the first black families to integrate a white neighborhood in the Tooele County during this time period. And they became very close friends with my grandma, despite a lot of protestation from her parents, my grandma's parents, who like refused to come and visit them because of their black neighbors living next door and those kinds of things. And they made really close friendships with them. And the this family were very big into music, specifically Motown music. So Gladys Knight was one of their favorite performers, along with many other performers. And so growing up, visiting my grandma's house but also my mom we listened to motown performers constantly this was always on at our house we heard it all the time the temptations were one of the people that i listened to a lot michael jackson donny osmond gladys knight marvin Gaye, the supremes all of these people were this is this is the music that i listened to growing up and so seeing her perform at this time period 
I don't know, it brought all of those memories back to me so strongly. Anyway, I'll, what's your thoughts on that section? Well, I wanted to ask you, how old would you guess that she was? I have no idea. I think, well, I guess I have some idea. She's so young. I guess she's like 17 in this per, at this point, something like that. That is that is how old I also thought she was. I thought she was like a teenager, but she was born in 44. So she was 25 at this point. What? She just looks so young. Holy she smokes. She looks so young. But, and I was thinking about it because the other thing is she's also... Because before she performs, they do have that little talking head with her where she's talking about how nervous she was and how, like, she didn't, I think she didn't quite feel established and didn't feel like she was one of the names. And I I think that was true because, so this was 69, obviously, Mm -hmm. and her first single was I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which was 67. So only two years before this. Yeah, and makes sense. Just, I think just a year before that, 66 was when she signed with Motown and was like a second string act. So it she hadn't really even become a household name yet. She just had a couple of successful singles and then would have a couple more in 69, but I don't think had any breakout singles in 68. Yeah, this all tracks. I just, uh, I assumed that she did did all this when she was younger but she just looks she just looks so young and honestly like she still looks really young now um she has aged really well so uh so that i shouldn't have been surprised by that yeah and her performance in this is is quite good as well i loved it a lot and the interviews with they, they, they had with her and her talking about like her connection to to you know, black music and the civil rights movement and all of those kinds of things. I loved the interviews with her and the performances that she did. Yeah, and I always think there's something so cool when you, like, performers, this is what performers do. And it's like, it's sort of like if you watch athletes, you know, which is something that I think, well, I watch tend to watch more athletes doing stuff just because a lot more of it is televised. And it's like, there's something kind of amazing that like, when you click into what you do, your body just knows how to do that thing. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what nerves or what like other stuff you're experiencing. It's just like, there's this self-preservation thing that takes over self-preservation and also just practice and professionalism. And so I loved being able to see how, I, like when she was performing, I didn't see any of those nerves and certainly didn't hear any of those nerves. And I love being able to see, just see that click in for someone and yeah. watch them take command because this is, is what they do. And it, it had to have been such a difficult stage to perform on because like that is not a place that's going to have the best acoustics in the world. And you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's it, And yeah. it was such a big group. But it's different from a lot of other concerts, in my mind, because you, it's just, this is a free concert that people are just showing up to, like, from the neighborhood. And it had this very, like, just a barbecue vibe. Like, people are there just at the yeah. park hanging out. And so that kind of vibe, that kind of performance is going to be very different because you have to manage the crowd in a very different way. These aren't your normal, regular fans that are coming over to see your performance. This is you're having to appeal to a, a group. It's a very different exercise of muscles is what I'm trying to say when you when you come into this moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. That was all I wanted to say about Gladys Knight. Did you want to say That's it. Anything She's great. One? Yeah. All right. Let's let's move on and talk about this this Stevie Wonder. There, there are several Stevie Wonder moments. They sort of open with Stevie Wonder and then I guess he's just back for the the stinger and then there's the his big section where he actually has a full song. Yeah. And the so I thought this was so cool because I've done a good amount of like Googling for Stevie Wonder. And if you, so one of the weird things as a piano player who like didn't really grow up with a lot of knowledge about synthesizers or how non-acoustic piano keyboards work is when I'm listening to key, I had to do a lot of training to understand what keyboardists were doing when they were playing non-piano keyboards, if that makes sense. Yes. And I think Stevie Wonder is such a good example of that if you listen to a lot of his music, because certainly a lot of and you can see it in this video, there's a lot of lower synthesizer stuff that he does that my ear does not immediately recognize as being on a keyboard, and I kind of just assume it's on a bass. And it is, I I know it's like a weird position to come at it from a pianist, but there are like not a lot of videos that I've been able to find of Stevie Wonder where you can really see his fingers doing the amazing stuff that his fingers can do, which is, like, I don't know, it's strange, because you think about, like, the great pianists, you know? If you go and look for Nina Simone videos, you can find a ton of them. If you want to look for Billy Joel piano solos, if you want to look for Elton John piano solos, if you want to look for Ben Folds piano solos, like, you'll you you go type that into youtube and the top 10 videos will just be like these unbelievable solos and it's a little harder to find that for stevie wonder even though what he is doing in this song is like unbelievable and i i remarked to mayor like god his fingers are his hands are huge yeah and then i couldn't really tell like, are his hands big or is this keyboard small? And I went to try and look at some other videos and I I think it's a little bit of both. I think the keyboard's a little undersized, but I but that kind of makes it a little more impressive to me because whenever I play a keyboard that's smaller than a piano, I'm just playing all of these wrong notes like all the time. And the way he is some of it is like I think the keyboard sound he was using was being particularly forgiving and it's a song that looked like it was either in probably in G flat or D flat which does let you play more black keys more of the keys that are yeah. raised up which is a little more forgiving in terms of aim you can sort of just throw your hand there and the first notes you hit are going to be the ones that sound the best but it still doesn't take away from, like, he is playing a lot of notes and playing them really accurately and really fast. And I I was just 
completely blown away by this and i was like why don't we have more of these <laughs> why yeah. why don't we have more of these videos yeah it's it's wild and it this is also at the beginning of stevie wonder's career and that's one of the things that really just blew me away because he talks about in the in the video how this is the beginning of his career so uh, i don't know maybe that's part of what happened is over time he you know more of those videos weren't being made for him for whatever reason i don't know i haven't i I don't think that's true this couldn't have been the beginning of his career because his first album was released when he was 13 so it's not the beginning of his career he's still one of the most popular artists but he still had a lot of his biggest years to come is Mm, is one of the things that's what i meant to say it's yeah he's very young compared to like there's so much track ahead of him because he was going to have, like, the 70s is where he really hit a lot of his biggest, like, classic albums. And then the 80s is where he had a lot of his bigger commercial albums. And so in the in 1969, this was still kind of, you know, this is young Stevie Wonder compared to, like, the veteran that we're going to get later on. Right. The So the record labels didn't really... And I think maybe he also didn't really know like what his sound was and what he what where he was going to end up so yeah exactly like the sign seal delivered would come out in 1970 and then that run from with where i'm coming from in 71 and then sort of the the big three music of my mind in 72 talking book in 72 and then inner visions in 73 yeah Yeah. so that that was all still to come in his career and if you go listen to his early albums it's like they are not really r&b albums at all they're basically jazz albums and where I i think people knew he could play all these instruments and he's so musical like it's just so inherent how musical he is but hadn't found the sound and hadn't found how to market him yet yeah yeah all of this it's it's it this is what really hit me as i was watching the film because just and he's so good in it and so seeing seeing him at this stage of his career and just the effortless talent that he has in 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 playing these songs and like working the crowd and all of these things it, it really i loved his performance so much in this movie and it's not surprising yeah. to me that he was kind of the most featured artist on the film as well, because, I mean, for one thing, his performances are so good, but also he's like one of the greatest musicians ever. And seeing him at this stage is just a cool thing to see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to say anything about anything else about this or should we move on? The, the only thing I, else I want to say is he looks so good in those suits. He was mm-hmm. just, oh, my God goodness that man stevie wonder um pretty much every photo that i've seen of stevie younger is him older and so seeing him at this age and with that kind of style that he had really i don't know it that impacted me as well just the way that he was dressed uh so i don't know that's it stevie was great yeah Okay, let's talk about this other big sequence, and I loved this sequence, and this was the the moon landing sequence, where they're talking about the moon landing, and so there were a couple of things that were really eye-opening to me here, like, I, 
had never I've never heard this framing of the moon landing before. So if for some reason you didn't pause for the break and didn't watch the documentary, they interview a bunch of people who are, I think, at the festival or maybe they're right they're they're interviewing them at the festival yeah they right? go to they go down because there was such a big crowd the reporters are like hey we can just go ask people what they think about the moon landing because everybody's here so they just went down to the festival and just started asking people about what they thought about the moon landing yeah and the every i mean i'm sure it wasn't every single response they got but every response that they showed were people saying why are we spending so much money going to the moon when like black people can't get their basic needs met here in this country and when they said that it was like oh that's an extremely obvious framing of a very valid way of viewing what's going on and it's something that we're dealing with now as one of our little billionaires in this country is building his own rockets and trying to race off to space and race off to Mars. And you see that framing very commonly on Twitter, but it is not something I had ever heard for the 1969 space race and felt, yeah, it didn't feel good to hear it for the first time (laughs) here. That's for sure. Yeah. I I feel like so much when ever that moment is brought up in like history classes or documentaries or in films or whatever it's always portrayed as like this heroic moment that everybody was on board with that brought the nation together and it seems so obvious when you're seeing this response that no of course it wouldn't be why would it be that was and it was very much like a white thing the response that people had to the to the moon landing but it is a little bit jarring to see it at this moment and have it juxtaposed with this festival that's going on yeah absolutely and the other thing that and I think this is where you can re- you really feel his experience, his talent, his predilection towards being rhythmic, towards being a drummer, is he is cutting back and forth between a musical performance. At one point, he yeah. starts cutting back between the musical performance and pe- fitting in people's dialogue. And it was like frenetic enough that I was always worried they weren't going to finish this. And this is something I don't, I'm curious how, what your reaction to this was, Maddie, but I have a lot of experience as a music director and playing rehearsals where there's a lot of time where the way they structure musicals is like you sing a line and then there's underscoring and the actor has to fit this line in here. And it's always extremely stressful because the like, the music has to keep going. (laughs) If they flub their line or if they just like get a little emotive and want to take a little more time here or there, then stuff is going to run over each other and it's going to be a train wreck and it's not going to happen. And so I felt that feeling that I would feel in rehearsal, like, oh my gosh, is it going to time out? Even though I know like he's gone in and put these things in specifically and found quotes that fit in all of the specific times. And so it had a very like emotional impact on me in that moment. For me, it felt very much like listening to someone sampling people speaking 
onto a rap album and mm. like it's put together almost like this is the song is the people talking and the song being performed and the way that they're edited and stitched together but yeah i agree with you i think i thought that was a masterful just incredible work of editing and this is this is one of the things that I think really earns Questlove the Oscar for this film because it's I felt that moment really well. And I don't think I felt the same kind of like nervousness that you felt, but I did feel this like anticipation and almost like being on edge because of the same kinds of emotions that you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that makes makes sense to me. I could I felt like I could see the spreadsheet with the number of milliseconds for how much time yeah. he had and the number of milliseconds for each um <laughs> each like seeing into the matrix and, yeah yeah so. like oh but it doesn't build right if we do this one here oh but we don't have enough space for the other one here and <laughs> oh what if i cut off just a little bit more yeah <laughs> i really liked this section it was great very good and then there's also like a, a section with a bunch of comedians during this part where they also talked all about the moon landing so that was kind of fun too that was fun and it had mabel who mom's mabley who is portrayed in marvelous mrs basil Ooh, that's kind of cool which yeah which was kind of fun yeah you have we've talked about this yes i haven't watched it i should watch it uh i don't know when i'm gonna get around to it still hasn't watched it haven't haven't convinced me yeah exactly oh wait we already did a prime season (laughs) shoot oh well at some point i'm sure the the other thing and i can't i can't remember if it was in this sequence or somewhere else i think it was in this sequence and it continues to get less surprising to me but i'm like still embarrassed how surprising it is to me which is the idea of police violence against non-white people is something that i wasn't aware of until the black lives matter movement and even though like intellectually i have educated myself and i know that (laughs) communities of color were aware of this and Like, it's something that they know intimately because it's something that they had to teach their kids for survival and they were taught by their parents for survival. It still is, like, emotionally impacting to me when I hear people from before that time talk about it with such candor and such awareness. Because Basically in the same way as people talk about it now. Yeah. Right. And the only... Like, nothing has changed except the, like, the, they've received the internet, (laughs) a better platform, well, and I guess the ability to take videos from their mobile, from our mobile phones. Yeah. And the, yeah, it's, it's just so disheartening to realize and be struck with the reality that nothing changed until there was a public platform like Twitter and until there was the ability to have video evidence. And and even now, it know. still feels like so much doesn't change. But I, I agree with sure, you. Sure, I, I don't mean to imply that it's that it's fixed. Yeah, just, I, yeah, I totally get you. But I agree with you with that emotion because 
again, I, I've, I think I've gone through that emotion a in a little bit more detail just from having to research over and over the time period in order to teach it mm -hmm. because I've, I watched so many videos of in order to show things to my students. And so I think I've in the past, you know, like six years or something like that, I've had a lot of opportunities to kind of see these responses that people had at the time period and how much they connect with the same kinds of responses to, that people have now. They're using different language, but talking of different words, different words isn't even the right thing. The different, different, it's just, you know, the slang terms that people use are different, but it's the same things that they are talking different about. Different verbiage, over over. yeah. Yeah, different verbiage, but the same concept and seeing how much of it hasn't changed but one of the things that always stands out to me as well is that people at the time period were really pleading with with audiences to understand and see these these things that were happening but because of the lack of like cell phone documentary evidence you can tell that they're they know that so much of it is just not going to be believed and mm -hmm. uh, and it still often is not believed, but there is a different kind of impact that you have by knowing that at least you have the video and it is saved. Pull it up and it's on the internet to as evidence of what happened that you can show. Like I, we can see this with our own eyes that this is happening. So there is there is that kind of impact is shifts the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, and it's just always such a good reminder for me that. Like when I get information that I don't want to hear or information that I don't want to think about. And like we have to know that our natural reaction to hearing that is to dismiss it and try not to think about it. Yeah. And it's such a good reminder to to us to try to squelch that squelch that impulse squelch that response and not have to wait for hard hard evidence or not have to wait for evidence that we can't ignore and i think we'd be better off if we could all be working to squelch that impulse and i'm sorry i said squelch so many times should we move on to the last section we wanted to talk about yeah, so the last one that I wanted to cover here uh, was the section where Nina Simone performs. And I really love this section of the film. Uh, Nina Simone is one of my favorite artists. She is a very closely connected with Lorraine Hansberry. And so as I've had to teach that stuff, I've learned a lot about Nina Simone. And I've gone back and listened to a lot of her performances and um, mm. watched a lot of video of her performing. And... So it was very exciting for me to get a chance to see her in this film. And she does such an excellent job. She's got two parts where she's playing the piano and one where she's working the crowd and doing this call and response. And what really stuck out to me is that that normally when you watch videos of Nina Simone, a lot of the performances, she is in a smaller setting, like in front of a piano with a smaller group. But in this one, she's in front of such a big crowd. The There was no fee for admission, so you just have a lot of people that are there. These are a lot of people that aren't necessarily going to be musical experts or know her know her 
um, repertoire really well, and so she just has to get up and use her natural abilities to work the crowd in order to get get this call and response from them. And she does an excellent job at it, and she really feels like she is in her natural element. Uh, so that's one of the things I loved about Nina Simone here. Uh, I'm not sure what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think this was something that was clearly really important to her. I think she seemed pretty amped for amped for this performance and she clearly had something to say and wanted to make sure that she was able to get her her message across and certainly seeing her up from the piano was was very cool i think nina simone is like really interesting as a pianist and really impressive as a pianist and if people aren't familiar with with her music i do hope they'll go go check her out because she so she's primarily a jazz pianist and that's like if you go listen to her albums that's a lot of what she plays but she's classically trained and I feel like that's not something that I experience a lot with jazz pianists <laughs> there's uh you know jazz jazz piano sort of is stakes its claim on being swung or having syncopation and I don't want to talk down to anybody but if you don't know what that is sort of if you take your your basic eighth notes your one and two and three and four you can have it straight where there is equal space in between those notes that 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 but it can also you can add sort of a swing to it where the second note becomes shorter than the first note. And so if you hear someone say to a pianist, swing it or play it swung, that's generally what they are going to do in their head. They're going <laughs> to take any of their even eighth notes and then swing them at a, at a little syncopation. And, you know, I went to a musical theater school, but also had a very good jazz program. And occasionally we would get the um, jazz pianists accompanying in our classes. And there was always a joke, you know, if a jazz pianist was um, <laughs> accompanying for you, they would maybe, um, yeah, if a jazz musician was accompanying you, then they would, you know, instinctively play it yep. swung. And it's like, oh, hey, can you... <laughs> can you not swing it? And then they would just like get up from the piano and not really know what to do. You know? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know how to not swing it. And I don't think that's like, that's sort of apocryphal. That's sort of making, making fun of people, ma making fun of them for something that isn't a hundred percent true. But I do kind of always feel when I'm listening to like a jazz pianist, if they're playing a song that isn't swung, if they're playing a song that's a little more, straight i i do kind of always feel like i hear a hesitancy in how they're playing like just like ah, i'm not quite used to this because when when you're like when you're playing piano you're not really thinking like finger note finger note finger note finger note you're you tend to think more in terms of like the shape of your hand or your hand movement or which way it's moving because you just can't really think fast enough or it takes too much effort to think about what each finger is doing manually and if you're swinging versus when you're playing something straight it does require 
different arm movements. It does require like different muscle memory and you have to sort of do stuff differently. It's like if you're an athlete that's used to playing one position and you're playing out of position, you can still be an incredible athlete, but you you have a slightly different kind of muscle memory to it. So you'll respond in a little bit different way. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And the some of the I, I was really only familiar with Nina Simone's jazz stuff before watching this, but preparing for the podcast, I went and listened to some other stuff. And there's some like faux baroque in her in her catalog stuff that i really was not expecting to find and it's it's really really cool and i i also feel like one of the other things i wanted to talk about is i feel like she shows a little bit of different technique in this video than than what she normally does um if you're a pianist if you're a classically trained pianist one of the things that you generally want to do is you want to approach the keyboard from the top you want your hands to sort of fall onto the keyboard you want gravity to do as much as possible because playing the piano is hard playing notes is hard and the more you can sort of give up to the laws of the universe the less energy you can expand the expand the less energy you can expend the more you can use on other things on the things that really matter and Generally, when you do that, I don't know why this is, maybe it's all in your head or whatever, but when you're doing that correctly, when your hands are falling on the keyboard, it creates this nice, round, full sound on most pianos. And especially at the beginning of this video, that is not what Nina Simone is doing. Um, She comes at the keyboard from behind the keyboard and my piano teacher, my mentor in college would call stabbing the keys and generally not something you want to do. It takes a lot more effort, but it also will create this much like harsher sound, much harder sound on the piano. And I'm guessing it's not something she like fully thought through in that sense i'm guessing it's something that she more just like intuited but it was really cool to see her do this this is at the top of her set and i'm guessing it's because it's not a particularly demanding section of the song but you can see it does have jumps like her hands are jumping from the low part of the piano up to the higher part of the piano and i i thought it was cool to see that sort of technique alteration and sound alteration in in real time from her for sure yeah and it also you know accents the the song that's being played so like regardless of whether it was intentional or not it does bring out the backlash blues if that sound fits really well that that song oh i think it was definitely intentional it's just a question of whether it was instinctual instinctual or whether she had like thought through what what she was intending to do yeah, it makes sense. And so the like if you watch her other videos, this is not technique that she tends to utilize and it it's not technique that she utilizes later in later in this performance either. That makes sense, yeah. Uh did you Yeah, so yeah. the other thing that I Go wanted ahead. to mention about Nina Simone is she is an excellent musician and really just she has She performs so well, and the way that she's able to sing and perform and kind of be able to maneuver between all of these things so deftly makes her a very accomplished, incredible musician. But on top of it, she is 
unparalleled compared to most musicians in her ability to take ideas from the civil rights movement and other aspects of justice and equality and distill them down mm-hmm. into into songs that she is then able to communicate to a broad audience. Because of this, she has such an integral part in the civil rights movement. And this, this is one of the things that I love about Nina Simone. Uh, I remember there was on Twitter, someone had said, uh, I don't care what kind of music my kids listen to as long as they like Nina Simone. <laughs> and I really connect with that one as well because she's because of this aspect of her music. And she does a lot of this in this performance, but there's a couple of songs that I love of hers that do this. There's uh, Mississippi Goddamn, which is one of her earliest protest songs. And then the other one that I really love, because it connects so much with Lorraine Hansberry, is the song To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. And so I encourage people to go listen to those. To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, in particular, when you listen to it, you want to make sure to give it time and space because the way that it starts the 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 notes it it doesn't quite i don't know how to explain it exactly but it doesn't quite fit exactly at the beginning but it as the song develops you start to see where it is that she's going with it and the ideas come a lot more into focus through the end of that song and so the first part of it might feel a little bit unsettling and then it gets into it and you connect with it a lot more yeah i think it's not a super intuitive setting of lyrics to music and so it's something that your ear like the way the syllables land with the cadence of the melody is not how exactly how you would expect it so the first time you hear those lyrics it's not the next syllable is not what you're expecting to hear and so it's something that your ear warms up to through repeated listens through the fact that it as a song and songs have repeated sections yes this makes sense uh and it helps to have you explain it that way yeah excellent uh did you have anything else you wanted to say oh and i did want to say just because we placed everyone else that we talked about um so nina simone's first album her first three albums were in 1959 so she she was a decade into her recording career at this point by the time she was doing this concert and her recording career kind of peters off in like the five years after this concert and she but she still does a lot of a lot of civil rights work and all of those kinds of things and she still performs a lot afterwards she doesn't she just doesn't develop quite as much new music afterwards but so she's right in the peak yeah. of her powers when she comes and performs on this song and that that makes it a little bit different than a lot of these other a lot of a lot of these other singers she's at her peak a lot of the other ones are either just starting out or they're very much like an established established musician that's at the end of their career and she's the one that's really like right in the center of it yeah she had had four albums that charted prior to this or nope i can't count five albums that had charted prior to this so nina simone in concert in 64 I Put a Spell on You in 65 and Pastel Blues in 65, Wild is the Wind in 66, and then Silk and Soul in 67. And then she would only have two more albums that charted, at least on the on the main Billboard chart. And that was Black Gold in 1970 and Here Comes the Sun in 71. So ex- exactly as you said, career tapered off a little bit after this. 
Uh, great. So should we move into cleanup? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. I don't have a ton left. We were able to hit everything that I wanted to hit, except I didn't realize until this that uh, that Sly played the keyboard. So that was really, really cool to see. Oh, the Sly performance was so good. Yeah, so, it was really excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the I love the Sly performance, and just Sly is. I don't know. It's uh, it. Uh, listeners probably have heard that one of my favorite musicians ever is Prince, and you can see the through line from Sly to Prince so clearly. They they comment on that in this film, but it's mm-hmm. just it's really clear, like the style and the kinds of music they play and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, that was that was really cool. And I I haven't we haven't had a Mary's missive in a while, but she said during ordinary people and it's something. I think about a lot, but she said, it's so weird when you know a song so well, and then you actually see someone singing it, that it's like, oh, someone actually made that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. It's true. So one of the other things that I wanted to to bring up in the, there's this moment where they have Mahalia Jackson come in and sing Precious Lord, and then it's also got some moments from Reverend Jesse Jackson, and they're talking about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and mm-hmm. you know that he was there, like at the assassination. And I just found that part really moving. I didn't have a lot to say about it because it's just an interesting, really cool moment that they captured uh, that they talked about. But it's it's cool. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. Yeah, I sort of on that line, I was surprised at the diversity of genres for this just considering that it was called summer of soul that you had um you know gospel music soul obviously and a little bit of r&b and uh, a little bit of like a little bit of jazz psychedelic i don't yeah that kind of stuff and then a lot of they had a little bit of like African folk music, I guess you could say. Uh, they had people literally from Africa that uh, came and performed like folk music at it. And some, yeah, and some Latin music as yes. well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess if you're filling six days, you, you got to fill it somehow. But I, I thought it was nice to have, have all of that diversity. I agree. The, the other thing I wanted to mention is there's a performance here of one of my favorite songs of all time, which is My Girl, performed mm-hmm. by The Temptations, and David Ruffin sings this one. And, you know, it's it's not a great performance of the song. Um, and Hey, man, he put the Ruffin Ruffins. <laughs> he did put the Ruffin Ruffins. And I love David Ruffin. He's, he's a great performer. But the, at this point, he had left the band, and... I don't know. It's a he's he's at the end of his career, kind of at this point, and uh, you can kind of tell. So that performance, I really enjoyed seeing it, but the, I didn't enjoy the song as much from that one. Yeah, I think I think he sort of knew he was uh, squeaking it out, as it yeah, were, for sure. And then the the only last thing that I wanted to say was uh, we mentioned Gladys Knight and. Her song Midnight Train to Georgia is just one of my favorites. It's such a good song. So folks, go listen to Gladys Knight sing Midnight Train to Georgia. Y'all will love it. Yeah, certainly one of the best things uh, in a documentary that I really loved is you can get a really good playlist from this. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially if you have to take notes during it so you can do a podcast like I did and 
get all of the artists' names down. Yeah, I was going through and listening to a bunch of the the songs from this today in preparation, but also just kind of wandering through people's discography and listening to a bunch of the different things that they've done. And I don't know, that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Do you have anything else or shall we wrap up? That's it for me. All right. So thanks so much, as always, for tuning in. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us some longer form thoughts, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. Those three words at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear some feedback. We're gearing up for our next season here. And we uh, I think we're going to do Netflix next, but we definitely want feedback on what types of movies work for you because we haven't set the movies that we've picked yet that we've picked for next season yet so if you have any feedback for that definitely get in touch and hopefully you can get in before before we finalize everything and as always we do want to thank david stewart aka Estoriel, for helping us out with the editing and making us sound better than we even ever do And next week, we are going to be jumping back a decade, the 10-year anniversary of Looper, Ryan Johnson's Looper, which I know Matt is very excited about. I'm very excited about this one. Before recording, I don't really know what I know about this movie, so... Uh, yeah, that'll be that'll be fun, and I'm not gonna really go look anything up before before I watch it. So you'll you'll get a a fresh reaction next week. Very exciting. And do you have a closing question for us this week? I do. This one's pretty simple, but I think it's a good question to fit this one, which is just what is a concert that really stuck in your mind and you feel like is a big part of you? A concert, like or a performance, all kinds of different things. But what do you think? Yeah. So I the in i think it was april 3rd april 2nd or april 3rd 2001 it was the day the second day of the major league baseball season i went to see everclear in concert and i loved everclear i still love everclear i really like everclear and it was a pretty bananas concert so Lighthouse, I believe was their name, was opening for Everclear. And then Everclear was opening for Matchbox 20. And I liked Matchbox 20. I had, um, what was their first album? Yourself or Someone Like You. And I had also gotten their new album at the time. This was the tour for that album, Mad Season. But we were going to that concert. I went with my friend Evan and with my dad. And we were going to see Everclear. And Everclear was horrible. (laughs) They were so bad. And the songs were... It was really difficult to tell which songs were which from the album. And that was pretty disappointing. But Matchbox 20 and Rob Thomas were so unbelievably good. It turned me into a Rob Thomas fan for life. And I think has given both of those albums and then their ensuing album 
which now I don't recall what the name is, so much more play for me than I ever think they would have gotten just because I love reliving that concert so much. He was so charismatic and they sounded great and he was a ball of energy when he needed to be a ball of energy and he was able to bring it down when he needed to bring it down. And I like I remember that concert being like three hours but it, it couldn't have possibly been that long, but it, it felt like it just was everything. So, yeah, that's my answer. What about I love you? it. That's great. So I'm not a big concert person, but there are a few that, that stick in my memory. And one of them is because, so I got tickets to this concert and I didn't even know who was playing. I just got tickets for free. And then I was going on a date to this concert and I didn't really know anything about it when I showed up. So we go into the concert, and the performers are a group called Rockapella. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so famous for two songs in particular, which is Where in the World is Car- Carmen Sandiego, and, which is kind of their best-known song, but also the, uh, how do we describe this, the, the jingle for the Folgers commercials, the best part of waking up <laughs> is Folgers in your cup. Uh, which they performed both of these at the at the concert and talked about that stuff and whatnot. But then they went Absolute on to do bangers, this. Yeah, yeah, it's, they were a lot of fun. But there was a lot of other performances that they did. They were so good on stage. Like they were very, as you said, very charismatic. Really connected with the audience, and I had so much more fun than I expected. And I think part of that was that I just didn't even know what I was going to see and sure, kind of yeah. getting blown out by by this performance that i wasn't expecting and there was a lot of fun i don't know this was in 2009 it was great and the date was a little bit weird and not great from any any other part of it but that concert was a lot of fun nice uh, i kind of wish i could see them in concert that would be fun yeah, it was cool all right so that'll do it for this week and we'll talk to you next week bye bye